to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Mr. Johnson's Liberty Hood from the Lions of Liberty podcast. I'm with you once again. You're stuck with me, Brian McWilliams, as we look at some of the ongoings of Libertarian presidential candidate Gary Johnson. Now, you know I like to bring in some special guests for these uh, these episodes. And this episode, if you're wondering, 242, which means you can go to lionsofliberty.com forward slash 242. Also, you can find the archives of the show at lionsofliberty.com forward slash Gary. But... My special guest, I'm actually very excited to have him on, a uh, hilarious guy, one of my favorite comics, Mr. Ryan Stout. Welcome to Hi, the show. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not often that I get to do a libertarian podcast. I mean, it's it's kind of rare. Yeah, I, I agree. They're a rare <laughs> breed. And by the way, so I want to encourage everybody, check out Ryan's website, just ryanstout.com. You can go, uh, you can find him on Twitter, at StoutRyan. And uh, also, you know, he's been on Conan. He's been on he has a Comedy Central special. You should definitely check out his album Touche is on iTunes. And uh, I mean, you could find him everywhere. He's all over the place. He's kind of yeah. a big deal. Yeah, I've been around. I hate when people are like, I've never heard of you. I'm like, well, then you didn't bother typing nine letters into Google. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, honestly, hey, it, you know, you've made it when there's somebody put you in like an obey sticker on the side of a mailbox thing or a power <laughs> thing. That's how I think you really made it. So when you get there, we'll have you back on but you know for now people can just google you yeah 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 you you guys do your research i'm just gonna be here <laughs> so ryan you you know it's interesting we were talking a little bit before the show so you actually identify as a libertarian which i think was uh was fascinating because there's not that many libertarian comedians out there that are that are open anyway that are out right. uh, you able to use the uh, the libertarian transgender bathrooms but so <laughs> yeah so t- tell me a little bit about your your libertarian heritage I mean, my my mom and dad are both uh, people who, you know, they they never socially they were always very liberal. They really never had anything to say about religion or gay or straight or race, you know, in the home, you know, in the privacy of, of my own home. The two people that I looked up to for guidance never had any like social qualifications for how people should interact. Uh, they were all very, oh, well, some people believe this, some people believe that, and you have to let people be as they are, and as long as they don't encroach on you and what you need to do, then, you know, you don't encroach on them either. And uh, at the same time, you know, my mom was uh, an accountant, and my dad uh, is an engineer, and he, you know, he has a numbers background. So um, being fiscally conservative was just part of our day-to-day life. So when it would come to things on the news and the government spending money, they were very vocal about how you know, how they would despise any type of uh, excess spending. <laughs> is that, and that, does that come from the mother's accounting side of things? She's just she's imagining the numbers in her head. You could see her eye kind of twitching <laughs> out of the corner when you're watching the news programs. Well, I think it comes too from this idea that they 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 would actually talk about how I they wouldn't understand how you know certain you know making a big government agency to so- solve some sort of problem was going to be helpful. It just seemed like it was a an over expenditure when you could have you know private donations do it. You could have uh, people who actually had passion for that topic take care of whatever that problem might be. Um, and they they were always very vocal and very against creating new government organizations to solve problems. And 
I think growing up, because I heard that so much, every single organization that I was a part of, whether it was the Boy Scouts or Student Council or even church, um, I saw anytime there was a group of people, an organization that was trying to get something done, there would always be individuals in the organization that were power hungry, and they would often, you know, uh, do immoral things to uh, to kind of climb their way up the ladder. And I always found that really disgusting, you know, especially when you're looking at people in church or people right. in the Boy Scouts who are there to like set some moral example. And you go, wait a second, you're trying to set some moral exa- example, but you're lying to people about what you're doing and you're spending money on the back end. And, you know, there are all these like underhanded deeds going on in all the organizations I was a part of. And I was like, this is, there's something wrong anytime you have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some, and, the and bigger the organization, the more opportunity people have to do that. Precisely. And of course, this being the government, there's, you know, as you get higher and higher up, there's even less oversight. It's it's a massive sprawling entity that which, you know, how can people even keep track of all the different arms of this tentacle beast that we've created over the years? And uh, yeah, I'm I totally in agree with you. Um, now, by the way, I do think it's entertaining that you took your parents' libertarian values, but rejected everything else you're like i'm becoming a comedy or comedian mom and dad i'm not you know you're two very traditional backgrounds and you're like you know screw that well was your your dad funny by the way because engineers to my experience are are widely uh the least funny people on the face of the earth um so my dad has always been a really great storyteller um and i think that comes from him growing up on a farm in indiana where for fun people get together and talk or that's, they'd see how close they could get their face to the thresher without it getting torn off, right? Well, yeah. I believe um, that's their version of chicken. Even even when I would go like visit family in Indiana, like that's all we ever did. We just hung out and talked. And then every once in a while, somebody would say, oh, I have an idea. Let's make ice cream. And somebody <laughs> would go down and you'd crank a little tiny thing and it would make a little bucket spin and it had cream and sugar in there. And you'd have to do that for an hour and wait for it to solidify. And uh, you know what you did while you cranked the little crank? You talked about stuff. <laughs> That's, hey, might as well get it out there. I mean, I, I like that because there's so many opportunities. Excuse me, not so many opportunities. There's so many families now that actually – because of the way things are nowadays, you know, I, I hate to go off this like old man tangent. I'm 36. I'm already going off an old man tangent. It's about uh, technology, but it's like my fiance and I, I try, try to, to talk to her as much as possible when we do have things like over dinner, because nowadays I seem like people don't talk in person. Like maybe right. people need more ice cream machines. Like there's so much banter online, so many, you know, trolling back and forth or Facebook arguments. You don't really get that. Just let's sit down. Let's talk about it. And I think that's part of the reason why people don't accept other people's views as much. Like libertarians, we're very open to that. We literally say, yeah, you have your views. Let you, I have my views. Let's talk about it. Let's not infringe on each other's liberties or right to live our lives. But there's, right, I think, right. more open to viewpoints than people now because there's nobody talking. You're, you're able to stay in your silo of thought. Right. And, you know, there are a lot of professions out there where people have to actually physically engage with other people for a living and actually look them in the eye and talk to them. And those people, they have a, a very specific look on their face. Uh, my, I, I dated a girl whose father was a, a defense attorney. And anytime he would talk to you, you could tell that he was listening very intently and he'd have his kind of eyebrows raised and he'd be like almost like his eyeballs looking up at you. Uh-huh. And you could tell he was listening intently because he was trying to formulate some sort of response. And he wanted to know where you were coming from before he interjected. And I I mean, when I watch people like Gary Johnson uh, talk with like media, it's always interesting because sometimes he he will let them interrupt him. 
He yeah. will let that happen because he's like, oh, clearly they weren't finished with the point they were making. Let me understand whether, where they're coming from before I respond. Whereas people like Donald Trump just sit there and go, can I finish? Let me finish. Can I finish? Let me let me finish. Right. I'm going to finish now. And the level of communication really degrades in a quick way. Yeah, well, it's like or the Marco Rubio. I don't know if you watched any of the debates uh, going on for the on the uh, the GOP side of things. I think back, I think Rand might have even still been in the running, Rand Paul. But uh, you know, I remember the Marco Rubio thing where it's just there was no actually you could tell he wasn't listening to anything that was being said from any of the other people on stage because he just repeated the same talking points over and over it's very similar the way people think nowadays they've got this yeah yeah (laughs) It, it really does it really does feel like they are trying to hit political talking points whereas you know the the clips from this week with you know um Weld talking uh, on on Yahoo Finance and with uh, with uh, Gary talking on um, on uh, what was that? I, other I was trying to think of the show. It might have been Fox later. and yeah. Friends. I, I can't remember what the show was either. I was racking my brain before to write it down. I just can't remember. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll embed the I'll embed it in the uh, in the show notes, though. People, there you go. Sure, you have to go to the sure, website. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it's just interesting because the way they interact with these reporters, they're they're listening and then they're giving their actual beliefs, and there's almost a shrug of their shoulders, like. You know, and if people agree with me, that's great. And if people disagree with me, that's fine because these are my beliefs and this is the platform I'm running on. Um, but it's not any type of like, hey, everybody, you need to be with me. You need to be on the right side of this. And yeah. if you're not on the right side, you're wrong. Uh, there's none of that involved. It's well, just like a the, lot of uh, a very straightforward belief. Yeah. Well, I like that Gary. And also, I remember one time I gave him a, a jaunts on because we're, we're, we're actually we tend to be very hard on him in this show. But uh-huh. I gave him a jaunts on for this because I remember he during during one of his uh, I think it was a, a town hall or actually I think it was Anderson Cooper when he was doing his uh, his you know back and forth with him is he actually said. I could be wrong. You know, in the first, it's very important to be able to admit your mistakes and admit when you're wrong. And I think that's a novel concept for a presidential candidate, uh, to Jerry Johnson's credit to say, I could be wrong and I'll openly admit I'm wrong and I'll work to fix it. But if you don't actually come to the conclusion or accept the possibility you could be wrong, things are never going to get any better. Right, right. And I even think, uh, uh, in that, um, uh, that clip that I was talking about that Bill Weld was on, uh, they asked him something, some question. He just kind of like scrunched his eyebrows and he said, ah, oh, yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. Well, we'll and get- they said, they said, oh, you'll have to get back to us on that. And he kind of went, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to think about it. <laughs> yeah, which is great. I mean, that's always a lesson. I I do I do public relations for my uh, day job, and I always tell people I'm working with: if you don't know the answer, don't just spit something out just to do it. Just right. wait and say I'll get back to you on that. Otherwise, you're just going to sound like an idiot or give them completely false information that they can then come back and use against you. Yeah. So. Yeah. And and by the way, one thing I wanted to bring up while we we're on the topic of people speaking versus, you know, writing on the Internet. Um, I read a great article a few months ago. I think it was in The Atlantic just about how our brains process speech when we hear it and we're actually talking to somebody versus when it is the written word. Because when it's the written word, we we value it as the, almost there's a, a permanence to it. Like, well, this was written down, so this is how it is right. versus <laughs> With tone and inflection and the look on somebody's face, you know, there's there's a, a more of a fluidity to it. And there's more of a look, we're trying to 
come to a consensus on an idea, we're not laying down some idea in stone. Right. Well, it's like just look at look at all the mishaps that happen with email versus or email and text versus talking to somebody in person. Yeah, it's I mean, never ending. Never. Exactly. It's just there's so many misinterpretations and just mis- misreading inflections and the intent of the actual statement. And of course, on the Internet, people take one tiny sentence out of a massive interview, which I will be doing today because I'm a dickhead. But uh, <laughs> but, you know, it happens all the time. Now, now right. speaking of talking about or talking to people, I wanted to talk to you and see. Do you talk politics with other comics? Because I, I find it interesting because we've had uh, Dave Smith on the show, if you're familiar with him at all, from uh, Part of the Problem, and another comic named Jeremy, Jeremy McClellan, who's a, uh, a libertarian comedian. But I don't know how often people interact with other comedians. I know, you know, I do, I dabble in stand up, but I don't go out of my way to necessarily engage them in political conversation. Because most often I'm like, I, I, and shame on me for saying this, but most often I'm like, you know, I just know they're going to be liberal and I know it's going to be a big thing and I just don't want it the headache right now. Well, and fortunately, um, I would say that most comedians are socially liberal and then fiscally unaware of anything. Yeah, so, that's pretty um, accurate. They, they only think that they're Democrats, but uh, most of the things they talk about are social issues. So really, I, I don't have much of a, a problem with uh, most of what they have to say. And um, I, I spend a lot of time listening before I talk. So there are a lot of people who have uh, ideas about, you know, war or education or whatever. And I, I tend to nod my head and scrunch my eyebrows and say things like, oh, that's interesting. OK. And uh, I try to repeat back what they said to me just to make sure that I understand it. And usually they're not that crazy. But I'm also not a guy who's looking to talk politics like the, the people that I know that talk politics the most in the world of stand up comedy are some of the just like loudest blowhard know it all people. And um, yeah, they just, they just need a soapbox no matter what, if on stage or off stage. They have right. to be. And, and they're that way about every topic, not just politics. Yeah. So those people I will never talk politics with. And uh, I don't even want to hear what they have to say. So um, I think <laughs> the weirdest thing is when uh, – I, I, I think one of the big issues over the past you know, uh, eight years has been you know the whole healthcare thing. And it, what's really funny is comics are so social that comedians are always like, you know, people are dying and we have to take care of that. And people are going bankrupt and that's not fair. And uh, I, I had to tell them, I was like, well, yes, I, I understand what you want. You want a universal health care system. But how do we do that? Mm-hmm. That's the question. How does that happen? Right. And then I ask that question and I wait and they go, well, it doesn't matter. We just need to do it. Right. And I exactly. go, yes, but it's, this it's, is the problem. Yeah. These are all the problems is how do you do it without collapsing the whole economy and putting a ton of people out of work? Like, right, how do you precisely. make the transition? But they treat you when you ask that question, they treat you like they're saying, no, nah, we can't have universal health care. That's terrible. Yeah, it's they like it's like you don't you care. Like well, it's yeah. because they they look at things. This is what I find so often, not just with comedians, but with people in general that are that tend to be very progressive. Is I, I've had I've, I've had the start of many arguments with people where 
they come at it from a purely emotional point of view, which is, you know, it's like, how can you not think that we have to do this thing? Can't you see these people are hurting and dying? And and like you're saying, yes, I, I see that. And I, I feel bad. I have empathy for these people. But I also say, what's the logical way that we can go about this? What's the most beneficial way? How is it going to actually help the most amount of people? And how do we get to this point where these people can't get health care, for example, or can't get, you know, I ha- why are so many people on welfare and can't get off of it? And if you question any of these things to them, they just can't, they, they almost won't let you speak. And it's kind of like we were talking about earlier with they, they don't listen because they're just waiting. They're so full of outrage, uh, this yeah. emotional outrage that you can't get them to actually listen to what you're saying to acknowledge any of the logical points you might make. Uh huh. We're gonna end. We're gonna end the deficit by killing a few puppies. Is that okay? <laughs> and they go, No, no, you can't. Absolutely not. Puppies are cute, and I love puppies. And you go, But it's only three puppies, and it's trillions of dollars, trillions. And they go, No, that's impossible. We can't do that. Yeah, exactly. Man. I There's- love that analogy. Which, and by the way, I want to. This is a good. I, I want to talk a little bit about. So. It, Tell me about your what, how would you describe your comedic style? Because then I want to segue into the, into a bit that you do. Well, uh, the other thing, I mean, with with my comedic style, it's uh, I focus very much on crafting jokes. You know, the same way that a painter would look at, okay, how do you make a painting? I'm just looking at making a joke. I never have these deep seated ideas that oh, I need to. Uh, convince the audience that their liberal values are wrong or that their conservative values are wrong. Step one is what is the setup? What is the punchline? How do we do that? How do we make wordplay and misdirection and incongruity? How do we work the comedic elements into a joke? That is first and foremost because that is my job. Um, <laughs> and so I think there are, there are a lot of people that come from the other um, the other angle where they try desperately to – uh, force some social issue and they go, ah, oh, the jokes will just come. And I sit there and I go, no, 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 the jokes don't just come. You have to work on them. You smoke you enough weed, to- man. You can convince people immigration's wrong. Yeah. If I just say it loud enough, it'll be fine. Um, my, my comedic style actually kind of comes from something that we've talked about, which is there is a big disconnect between what you think and how you feel. And it plays into everything that we do. So I talk about things like, you know, laughing at somebody getting hurt. You laugh at somebody falling down the stairs at the battered women's shelter. Um, you know, there's there's a level there where you're like, oh, somebody's <laughs> falling down the stairs. That's not very nice. We shouldn't laugh at that. Oh, but contextually, this is a whole different ballgame. <laughs> so what I yeah. feel in my heart and what I see in front of me, it conflicts with the logic of this situation. I do that a lot. I make an audience sign on the dotted line that like, uh, getting a good deal is always a fun thing. That's always a good feeling. And then I bring up the idea that I got a great deal supporting a third world kid. One of my, my favorite friend... bits you do, man. Love yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's it, it's been a lot of that. And I've been through a fair amount of therapy. <laughs> um, <laughs> because and... of your own comedy or just in general? <laughs> no, just in general. And my therapist even pointed out, he was like, uh, Ryan, you believe that people's emotional responses and their emotional outrage tends to get them in trouble. And that's that's something that you just said on this podcast, Brian. You're like, yeah. they won't they won't let their emotions go to ch- think clearly. And uh, that's something I've been obsessed with for a long time. And I didn't even know I was obsessed with it until I looked back at nearly all the material I've written in 15 years. And it all kind of hinges from this this just I just don't understand why people get 
emotionally involved with some of these topics when there is a logical solution in front of them. Yeah, it's well, you know, it's exactly what I said. It's it there's that solution could be directly in front of their face, but their brain is blocking it with a cloud of their own, you know, misconceptions or emotional blockades. Yeah, it's very frustrating. But so yeah, yeah. I, so that I I you know, like I said at the top of the show, uh very funny. So I encourage everybody to check that out. And like I said, I'm gonna link to some of your the specials on Comedy Central with the clips to that. And of course you can find uh touche on iTunes. But I also wanted to play a clip real quick because Ryan does a great bit comparing liberal and conservative audience responses. So let's take a quick listen to that. This is fun if you'll let it be. <laughs> There's still a judgy vibe in here and I can't get over it. I started my comedy career in San Francisco over a decade ago. I started at this club, right on this stage. Yeah. I sat at that back bar during shows and just hoped I would get a shot. And one day I got to MC, it was great. Then I got to middle, then I moved away, got on TV, came back, I'm a hero. But when I started here, I was always afraid to leave. I was always afraid to go to like middle America. I was worried their, their politics and their religion would get in the way of fun. And you know what I found out? They're fucking great out there. You know who kind of sucks? Liberal San Francisco audiences. Holy fucking shit. It is unbelievable, guys. And if you don't believe me, let me explain to you what the problem is. Liberals laugh at comedy like this. Oh. Well. I'm not offended by that. <laughs> but I can imagine a person who might be offended. So on behalf of my make-believe friend, I'm not going to laugh. Conservative audience is way different. I don't care what you think of their politics. In a comedy club, great. You know why? Selfish. <laughs> They just go, wait, was that joke about me? No? What do I care? <laughs> Fun! Fun! If a liberal audience member hates me, they will leave the show and say, thank you for your performance, but I really didn't agree with what you had to say. <laughs> Conservative audience will be like, hey man, that was a lot of fun. You're going to hell, but that was a good time. We like that a lot. I still don't have a fan, but the vibe is way different. So, Ryan, coming out of that, like, you know, tell me a little bit about writing that bit. Well, I mean, obviously the inspiration came from real life experience, but tell me a little bit more about, you know, that concept and, and reaching these audiences in different ways and how that kind of plays into the way you think about comedy in general. Well, you live in San Francisco and you, uh, you know, the city bombards you with this idea that they are the highest thinking of audiences, that they, you know, they're the ones who are inclusive of all people and they are the ones that will decide. And uh, mm -hmm. you perform comedy in front of them and they almost always get like third person offended by things. They always go, no, 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 because mm, I can think of a reason why that joke might hurt someone somewhere. And you go, well, th those people aren't here. Why don't you let those people speak for themselves? <laughs> um, meanwhile, because I was a young comic and I had never like performed in, say, the Bible Belt, uh, I just kind of assumed that some of my ideas in those situations People would say, no, that's terrible. You can't talk about those things because Jesus doesn't like it. Um, and then I got out there and they sat back and they listened and they were like, 
yeah, I don't care what you say. You you have the right to say whatever you want as long as uh, you, you know as, as long as uh, you're not hurting anybody. You have freedom of speech. Yeah, there is a kind of a reverse. You know, the most intolerant people many times are these people that are so that are the the warriors for good because yeah. of that, that exact thing. They they get so mad because of someone else, and then you say, well, if, let them speak on the let them speak up. Then if they're so offended, let them come up and say something because I don't know about you, but a lot of the times I'll make a joke on stage. And it might be about a, this, like people in the audience, maybe that exact person that I'm making fun of or that group, and they'll come up and say, oh, I love that joke. It was my favorite one of the night. You know, it's meanwhile, right. you say these people on the other side of the coin and say, well, you can't make that joke. I mean, that guy, that guy's handicapped or that guy's black or that guy's, well, yeah, whatever, anything. Well, and I, I think it comes from a place that people don't tend to learn anything about comedy or humor as they grow up. You know, you're not taking classes in joke structure when you're in elementary school. You know, True. when you get to middle school, you are not required to write 10 jokes and then read one in front of your class. You're not required to do that, but you are required to do that with things like poetry. You're required to study poetry, write a poem, read it in front of the class. So because nobody ever receives any education about jokes, they're led into this false sense of thinking that whatever they feel about a joke, well, then that must be the truth. I wonder and, if we can blame poetry teachers for all the ills that we're having in this country, because you're talking about you have to constantly break down a, a little bit of text and then say how you feel. And that's all that matters. Right, right, right. And by the way, once I got to college and had to take poetry, like day one, the, the professor comes in and says, look, um, we're not going to be discussing how you feel. I don't care how you feel. Today, we're here to discuss what makes these poems great. And it's very objective and it's very clear the elements of poetry that are in the work. So we're going to talk about those. If you don't like it, well, that's your personal taste and that's up to you. If you feel bad, that's your personal taste and that's up to you. But that's not what we're here to talk about. And so what you end up with is you have this view of art where you get to say, ah, yes, I understand why that's great mm -hmm. and I don't like it. <laughs> you get to say both. But if you never learn what makes a poem good, then you just end up assuming, no, I don't like it, so it's bad. And that's kind of what happened with jokes. If nobody ever learned anything about jokes. Nobody ever learned about humor theory. So they go through life going, I don't like how that feels. I don't think other people might, might like how it feels, so therefore it's bad. And yeah. you go, no, no, it does, no, not bad. You just don't know what you're looking for. You don't know what makes a joke good. Um, so because people don't know what makes a joke good, unfortunately, they're only left with one way to decide. And they judge on their own individual response. Yeah. Well, here's a question for you. We were talked a little bit about this before the show, too. And we're, we're, we are prattling on, but don't worry. We're going to burn through the Johnson Johnson offs in a minute. But <laughs> do you think, uh, do you think liberal comedy is easier than doing comedy that's a little bit more in the conservative bent or something that falls in the middle, like libertarianism? Um, you know, I think when you have, when you have an audience that believes in, if you have a very liberal audience and they know you're a liberal comedian, they will scream and clap at whatever anti-Republican thing you say. Right. And uh, I, I know there are conservative comedians out there that are Republican who I, – I know one guy in particular and I won't name names. But he gets on stage and he says these things about Jesus and God and country and his conservative audiences scream and clap. And I'm sitting back going – 
there wasn't a punchline there. Right. There was yeah. not a punchline there, and there was not a punchline from the liberal comedian either. You guys are just – this has turned into a political rally somehow. You know, unfortunately, uh, we we can't get the <laughs> the liberal the, – the libertarian audiences all in one place for anything, it seems like. And even if so we could, the there would just be a nude be, guy you know, walking around. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if I, they're going to be at a comedy club, it's very rare. It's very rare. Yeah. Maybe it's just that, I, I, you know, for me, it seems, and it, you make a very good point that conservative audiences can be the same way. But, you know, like you said earlier, sometimes they're more open to jokes that make fun of, of certain things where you're surprised at how tolerant they are. But yeah, for me, I find that a lot of, for, well, A, a lot of comedians are, are more progressively bent, but there's no punchline. And they, it's also, it's just so easy again, because of this emotional. And also I find that on the, on the left side of things, it's a very, this is how it should be done. And if you don't agree, condescension is the tool that they use most often, not even on stage all the time, but just in general, it's you're, <laughs> you don't know enough to talk about this topic with me. So it's like this insider, we're all smarter than everybody else club. And comedians on stage kind of fall into that same pattern of, look at these idiots. They're so dumb because they don't think how we think, and that's it. I And I agree with you, and I think that's partially because the vast majority of stand-up comedy happens in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, New York yeah. Minneapolis, Austin, Texas, Chicago. Those are all very blue places. So, of course, you're going to have more blue audiences. And so the comedian on stage is going to naturally pander to that more. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's just the weird overlap of how stand-up comedy takes root in cities. And cities tend to be a little more... Uh, uh, left leaning. Yeah. And, uh, I, and again, it's, it is one of those things that I look at these comics and none of them are on stage talking about fiscal policy. No, no, of course not. <laughs> They're the always happy, talking I mean, about granted. social situations <laughs> where the libertarians go, yeah, that seems about right. <laughs> true. Well, it's all, yeah, talking, true. talking fiscal policy to a, to a crowd of, of drunk people, it tends to not work out too well most often. Right. Well, doesn't you'll mean, find this doesn't mean I don't encourage people in our audience to try it, uh, as soon as possible. Uh, yeah, just get the jokes in there. Um, <laughs> in San Francisco, one thing that really killed me when I was kind of cutting my teeth there was the number of people who would take the stage in front of an audience and they'd say, good evening, everybody. So good to be in San Francisco, where everybody knows that George Bush sucks. And the crowd would go, yeah, immediately on their side. Kill he said it. We're so happy. <laughs> and they would scream for that no matter who the comic was. And they would scream for it multiple weeks in a row because multiple comics would show up and they'd be like, oh, I'm so happy to be this bastion of liberal right. thinking. See, and I would use like, that as my closer, you know, finish strong. Yeah, yeah. Get off real big. Um, <laughs> but the weird thing about San Francisco now is it's become so liberal that if you get on stage and say, hey, um, we all know that George Bush sucks, right? Or, or actually, you know, more topical, a friend of mine was just there and he got on stage just slamming Donald Trump. And the audience actually tensed up because they're like, yeah, but what if there are people here who are Trump fans and, uh, you know, they came out for a nice night of comedy <laughs> and they don't want to hear, you know, their candidate getting slammed. That's not very nice. Like you – San Francisco has gone so liberal that now they're looking out for conservatives and nobody's laughing at anything. 
Awesome. Must be wonderful to play the rooms there. Just yeah, uh, just yes. a lot of dead silence, a crumpling of uh, crumpling of people wadding up napkins as they uh, as they walk yeah. out. Nobody's uh, looking for any jokes. They're just looking for feelings. <laughs> well, it's good. Hugs after the show. You can you can have yeah. those signs that you hold up outside. Free hugs. Everybody loves the free hugs guy. <laughs> uh, nobody likes the free truth guy, but uh, free hugs. Free no, no, they don't. They don't want to taste it. So let's you know, let's take a quick break. I want to throw this and do a quick shout out to some of our Libertarian podcast friends. We'll be right back with more Ryan Stout in just a minute. Thank you. Hey, guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow Podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Hey everyone, the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com. You can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty, rock and roll. Yes, guys, check out those other podcasts. They are good people, good friends, and uh, good libertarians. But how do we know who's a good libertarian or not? How do we judge? <laughs> yes. How can we emotionally figure this out? <laughs> how uh, can we become outraged <laughs> rally behind something that's based purely in emotion? Well, you know, Ryan, I don't know if you're familiar or not, but we've got a sophisticated way that we like to grade things, particularly looking at Gary Johnson. Uh, it's called the Johnson Johnson system. Have you heard of it? Has it has it reached your part Absolutely. of the world? Absolutely, it's it's on uh, it's on all the websites. All the kids are talking about it. Oh, good. It's good. To, it's good to see that we're hitting it with the teens and the next generation of voters. After all, <laughs> so as you and the audience probably know, we're going to look at some of these positions. If we like it, we're going to give it a Johnson. But if we don't like it, we're going to give it a Johnson. So Ryan, are you ready to play the game? I am. All Johnson. Right. Johnson. <laughs> All right. First topic. So we were talking a little bit about Gary Johnson, his presence on stage, his interaction with some of the people that he's been talking to on some of these programs like Anderson Cooper, like uh, like John Stossel. So one of the criticisms that we've had on this broadcast of Gary is even though he tends to be very uh, he, he does think about his answers, he tends to come off a little bit weak and a little bit wishy-washy so i finally found though a clip of him where he was coming across in my opinion pretty powerfully so let's take a quick listen and then we're going to come back you say you are a non-interventionist you say that the threat from radical islam is quote overblown you don't want boots on the ground you say that airstrikes either from planes or from drones have quote unintended consequences so the question is, what's your plan to stop ISIS? Well, I do believe that if you want to look at ISIS, that they are regionally contained. Think of them as sands through an hourglass. We're going to see those sands through the hourglass. 
There was a poll a couple of weeks well, well, ago. Wait, wait a minute. I mean, what happens to the attack in Belgium? What happened to the attack in San Bernardino? These, what about we, the attacks we can, we can in call France? These, we can call these ISIS-inspired attacks. Do they come directly geographically from ISIS? Well, in, in the, the case East? of France, they'd seem to, yes. Well, Chris, uh, a poll among active military personnel two weeks ago. Who do they favor for president of the United States? Me. So what are they saying? What, are, what they're saying is judicious use of the military. If we're attacked, we're going to attack back. But the fact that we involve ourselves in regime change has resulted in the unintended consequence of making things worse, not better. And nobody's standing up to this. Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, not intentional. They go in, they support the opposition in Libya and Syria. The opposition's aligned with ISIS. We arm the opposition. Now those arms are in ISIS hands. This is the unintended consequence of our foreign policy. So basically, we're going to contain ISIS. We're not going to eradicate it. Well, if we eradicate it and and hey, you know, not that we're going to we're going to continue to stay engaged in that. But there'll be a void when that gets eliminated. We didn't even hear about ISIS until two years ago. This was Al Qaeda until it became ISIS and wipe out ISIS and it'll be something else. Yeah. How about that? Gary Johnson finally is on board. He's finally fired up. Like, I've not seen the Angry Birds movie, but I believe that's what it looks like. Because Jerry Johnson looks like an angry eagle during this appearance. Yeah, he was very passionate. Um, it's almost like I immediately thought about it if, if we're going to talk about emotional versus uh, logical or thinking. Um, you know, if somebody knows about stealing just the topic of stealing, and they have all these talking points about stealing and why stealing is wrong. I think that's most politicians. Mm -hmm. But if you actually have somebody who has been stolen from or they actually have an emotional connection to people who have been stolen from and they want to speak out uh, with their emotions and logic both combined, like that's where you get that passion from. And I feel like Gary Johnson really understands passionately why we are messing things up when dealing with things like al-Qaeda and ISIS. And he really is incensed. Like, why Why don't we stop this terrible pattern? Right. And uh, I loved I loved seeing that out of him. Yeah, it is. And it's crazy to think about. I mean, you look back, we've been doing the same pattern for literally 50 years. I oh, mean, yeah, yeah. And, and with the same results. Just the same. <laughs> um, I, so I give that a Johnson. All right. I will echo that Johnson. I agree. He's finally fired up. I, I want to see more of this in the future, even though I will say, though, I, I, I we're giving a Johnson. Little criticism for Gary, though. I don't know if you noticed during this video, but when he's talking, he does this kind of weird thing where he he lowers his chin and he kind of looks up with his eyes and a little bit looks like he's a porn star giving a blowjob. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there. It's a um, little weird. Way, that lower the chin, look up through his eyes. That's that's what my uh, ex girlfriend's lawyer father would do. He would uh, so like sexy. He would talk like that. <laughs> um, I will say this though. You know, so many people they say they want to vote for a president they feel like they can have a beer with, and when Gary is just being, um, when he's just. Uh, giving his opinion on things and he's just listening and talking in general. Uh, he seems like an intellectual person and a person that I could have a beer with. I really don't want to have a beer with the yelling, screaming type people that get too passionate about every single subject. But I do like knowing that there are individual subjects where Gary will say, okay, I've had enough. 
I've had enough. This is something I'm passionate about. So I'm glad that he's not like that with every topic, but I'm glad he he does hit that stride sometimes. Well, I feel like especially if he let's say he gets in the debates, which we all hope he gets in the debates. So let's say he does get in. Right. Yeah. This gives me a little bit more confidence in his ability to debate and and actually hold his own with Trump and Clinton up, up on stage because I was really worried to say, OK, God, if he gets up there and he's kind of just wishy washy and, and swallowing his words and, you know, this at least I say, OK, he can get pissed off. He can get his points across in a powerful manner that might be able to rival these two if they're, you know, when it comes blow, blow to blow. Right, right. And when you're dealing with somebody like Donald Trump, you know, you you have to really pick your moments when you're going to get big because otherwise yeah. he's just going to stamp you as like, ah, Gary Johnson spins out of control at every topic. Yeah, that's true. He's, <laughs> hey, you know what? We talked about this uh, on another a few podcasts ways, ways, ways back before Trump was the actual nominee. But, uh, I, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the comic book. Um, I'm totally blanking on the name. Dilbert. So Scott Adams, who does Dilbert, he says that Trump's a wizard. And you know what? I believe him. He breaks down how he keys on certain phrases that echo in the minds of people and just brands things like simple terms, winner, loser, good, bad. And it doesn't even matter what he's saying, really. And he can flip flop like he's flip flops on issues back and forth. But it's because of this wizardry that he's able to do it. Right. And then when he says it's unbelievable, folks, he's not lying. It really is unbelievable. <laughs> he's Yeah, that's the only thing he says that's actually truthful is how unbelievable his own success has been. <laughs> you don't even know, everybody. You don't even know. <laughs> All right. So next one. Uh, let's talk about Gary Johnson. So he wrote a uh, an op-ed for CNN, and he's talking about immigration. And this <laughs> is something where Basically, what Gary is advocating for, and this is the first time I've really seen it spelled out, because I don't think they get deep enough into a lot of these topics during the the TV appearances, but he's spelling out exactly his vision for immigration, which what it would look like is that essentially it would be an an open border uh, in the way that people could come across. There's no restrictions on anybody as far as what they do for a career or anything like that. They can come across as long as they're vetted. They pass a background check and then they're given a social security number and so they can pay taxes. And mm-hmm. that's it. You know, so what do you think about that plan? I mean, I I have uh, this is going to be one of those rare issues where I have an emotional connection to this because I grew up in El Paso, Texas. And he brings up El Paso in that article. Yeah, um, because. What's very interesting to me is that, that growing up around so many people who either had family in Mexico or who came from Mexico, one of the most interesting things is that they, the ones who do have their paperwork, they worked very hard to get it. And so I, do you remember that thing in Arizona where the, they wanted to pass a law that the police could just stop any, yeah, anybody got, uh, who looked Mexican? And yeah, under Sheriff Joe Arpeggio or whatever his name was. Yeah. What was fascinating about that was all of the white liberals saying that's racist, whereas there were a lot of Mexican people who had become Americans in El Paso, Texas, saying, no, I'll show you my paperwork. I'm, I'm thrilled about it. Right. Enforce the law. Yeah, I, I went wait. I went through the process. So I'd like to see other yeah. people have to do the same loops. Uh, uh, the right, right, right. I'm. 
it's actually a badge of honor that I get to show you my paperwork. I'm thrilled about it. Um, there, like everything in life, though, things are complex. And just opening up the borders and saying, oh, what job do you have? Oh, is this your background? Great. Come on in. Um, that's, I, I think there are matters of national security that could be, we, we might have to do a little more extensive background check and yeah. there might have to be a waiting period. But, um, I think his whole point was that people want to come here and work and, uh, it's, it's not a bad idea to encourage that as long as they're actually paying taxes and as long as they're, um, you know, decent citizens. Right. And not like, they're the not the rapists like else. Trump says. Right, right. Well, um, I, it's interesting. I mean, immigration is something where I've I've gone in circles a little bit on it personally because <laughs> I've I've gone back and forth. Where I say, OK, no, we can't have immigration like this because of the welfare state. They're just going to come in in droves and the welfare state is just going to, you know, it's just going to be leeching off the system without being incorporated. So I like that Gary's saying, you know, what, just do it. Let them in. Give them visas, give them social security numbers, or not visas, give them social security numbers. Because he made a good point in this article saying that, you know, a lot of the people that actually are coming in and staying, they're not the people that are, you know, crawling through tunnels. They're actually people that came in legally on work visas, but then they just stayed. So right. they're they're here either way and they're gonna continue to come in. So then I'm I'm thinking even further, like, yo, national security is is an issue. But mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many people that they don't have like some of these terrorists are coming. They don't have backgrounds in, in you know, that, that are tracked anyway that get in. So I'm saying, OK, if you have a deep background check on them, you do your due diligence. Maybe it takes an extra couple of weeks to get in because they're, they're doing the research. Fine. But, you know, I, I'm I'm more for it than I used to be. And I like the concept of, you know, people always say, well, what about the economics? What about jobs being taken away? Quote unquote, jobs being taken away. But at the same time, then I say, well, you know what? That massive influx of people should spur the economy in the communities they go to because they always tell us that we're a, you know, we're a purchase economy. You know, if people uh-huh. aren't buying, the economy is going to fall apart. So having this ton of people come in, spending money, you know, being paying taxes should, <laughs> should help everything, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems that way. And I think the other thing is a lot of people who um, take the more Trump approach to immigration, whatever that is, because he keeps flip-flopping yeah. on it. Um, the, the, the angry white people in the Midwest who are Trump's supporters, um, they very much believe that it's uh, uh, – I, I think a lot of them have never traveled. Yeah. No, you're probably right. <laughs> I was just in London two weeks ago, and um, when I looked around and I looked at the comedy scene there, and I understand that I could just get on stage and do 20 minutes, and somebody would hand me an envelope of cash – Mm. Uh, and there would be a lot of opportunity to do that. And there's no way anyone would find out. I would not have to pay any taxes on that. And I understood that my passport, when they stamped it, I could only stay for six months. But in my head, I thought, yeah, but what's the risk if I stay more than that? Are right. they really going to catch me? Are they? And then I realized, yes, but if they catch me, that means I can't go perform in Australia. I can't go perform in Hong Kong. I can't go to South Africa because then there's going to be. So, so yours you wasn't know, a moral issue. It was simply a, a risk reward career choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and by the way, that's that's what I'm saying, that uh, when you when you look at some of these laws, the people who say, oh, I have something to lose by breaking the rules. Right. 
that's different from somebody who's like, no, 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 uh, where I live in Mexico, it's very dangerous and it sucks. So if I get into the United States illegally, I'm just going to stay hidden because uh, if I don't – as long as I don't have to go back, I'm, I'm much better off. I do not risk anything by staying here illegally. Yeah, that's very true. And, that's, and my family uh, will mean, probably benefit from it in the, in the long run. So. Right, right. Yeah. So, what, so then what do you give this uh, – what do you give this latest – iteration of immigration from Gary Johnson. Well, you know what? Because I know that that the the items that we've brought up against it, I know Gary has thought about, and I know that he couldn't have articulated every nuanced detail of this in one CNN op-ed. I'm going to go ahead and give him a Johnson. All right, Johnson. A little, a, a little hesitant, but a Johnson nonetheless. Giving Gary yeah, a lot of credit yeah. for, for for I like that. I like that you're reading between the lines of the uh, yeah. the article to give him uh, credit where credit may or may not be due. <laughs> the article was not perfect, but uh, you know it was uh, it was far more thought out than a lot of the other immigration. Yeah, yeah very good uh, point. ideas that I've heard. Very good point. Um, all right, so next topic. This is an interesting one, especially since uh, being in the comedy world larry the cable guy recently was on uh again some fox news show i think but he was he was on a, a new show and they're asking him who he's gonna support and he came out and he said this is a, this is a quote and I, i'm not sure i understand exactly what what he's trying to say here but he says i'm a trump man and when i say trump man i mean gary johnson right that i don't now, really know what that's supposed to mean do you any idea i think what he meant to say and and it's weird because you go on these shows and you tend to say things you've never said before. And a lot of the comedian's life is you take a joke on stage for the very first time and you say it and you might not get through it right. and uh, or you might fumble it. And then you go, oh, I have to fix this and that. So the second night you get on stage and you tell the joke better, you tell the joke better the third night. By the fourth night, you usually have it. Um, but you go on these television shows and I know you sit backstage and you think, OK, I've got this joke. I've never told it before. Before. I hope that it makes sense. And I think if if I if my comedic instincts are correct, I think what Larry wanted to say was Well wait, hold on, let me interrupt you real quick there. Hold on. Because you might be I let me finish the second part of his uh of his joke. Yeah. Which yeah, is go ahead. so he starts, he says, I'm a Trump man, and when I say Trump man, I mean Gary Johnson. But then he went on later, later uh, in the show, and he and he then said that he likes some of what Trump has to say, but some of the things make him worry. And, and he said, here's the choice. Do I want to poop my pants or have someone else poop my pants? And then he's saying he would rather poop his own pants by voting for Gary. Right. And I don't quite I didn't quite put that together either. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe that was your I thought you're going to come around to all of that. But OK, so so what was he say with the first joke? Then? So I thought those were two separate jokes and I both I thought they both kind of clunked around a little bit. The first one, I think he meant to say, look, everybody, Larry, the cable guy, I'm a Republican. And by that, I'm voting for Gary Johnson. And by the way, that joke would just imply that Trump is not a real Republican. Right. That's all that joke would have been. And it would have also been like, look, that guy's nuts. I'm not voting for that guy. And um, I think that's the joke that he intended. Um, neither one is is quite perfect, but um, they're, not, they're not dynamite. They're not dynamite. No. no. Um, the, the real problem with Larry the Cable Guy is this. The comedian named Dan Whitney mm. invented Larry the Cable Guy to satirize that type of person, to satirize the redneck country bumpkin uh, – 
type person. And then now he's got that person on a show giving very direct um, he is, yeah, he has basically endorsements done, yeah. that are serious, and I'm like, oh no, the satire, the satire has collapsed on itself. I don't know <laughs> exactly. what, what to think now. He's really and, committed to the character. Yeah, I, I exactly right. It's funny. If, you know, I uh, maybe I'll find the the old clip of him before he was Larry the Cable Guy, which is always entertaining to see him. Yeah, you know, he's like yeah. he, he's like be mulleted back in the '80s, just doing. I mean, the, the whitest comedy, straightforward comedy ever. How how can a satirical character have a serious side, and how can this be? it like it's, i'm not i'm not doing the comedic math on this it's very confusing he's, you know what I, I give him credit he is now he is the mark twain of our generation he he, he was samuel clemens <laughs> and now he's mark twain all the time man <laughs> um but i will it, say this like the the i, I want to take a shot at the pooping the pants thing okay great i i literally i read it so many times i think he's saying and feel free to disagree i think he's saying that Voting for Gary Johnson is pooping his own pants because he's throwing his vote away and right. that if he goes with the crowd, he's letting other people poop his pants because they're going to vote for somebody that's terrible. Is that what do you think of that? Uh, you know, breakdown? I think I think that's a good <laughs> breakdown. Because I can't even of... other way to do it. <laughs> Yeah, that that seems correct to me. It seems like he's he's taken a very anti-Hillary standpoint, and yet because he's on Fox, he doesn't want to take such a strong anti-Trump position. Because he even said, like, you know, you you just say you don't like a candidate, and you get death threats, yeah. which is unbelievable. Yeah. But uh, I'm hoping that there are more people out there like him who really do grasp this idea that. Eh, Trump really is a crazy person, and I can't in good conscience vote for him. And I hope on election day we are really goddamn surprised. Yeah, me too. By man. the number of people well, that actually, you know, vote for Gary. What do you What do you give it? Is Larry? Is this good? So you're. you're I'm, I'm going to guess that yes, it's good. So you, what do you say? I mean, I think it's good for Gary, but it was so poorly executed, and I don't know if any dumb voter out there would be able to be swayed by that argument. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and say this isn't. This this isn't good or bad for Gary. It's just a nothing type thing that confused a lot of people. So can I give it like a John's ah? Uh? Yeah, I you know what? I, maybe we should introduce the John's eh. John's ah. <laughs> uh? I'm gonna I'm gonna give it. I I have to give it a John's on okay. because I also gave Melissa Joan Hart endorsing Gary Johnson a John's on. So I mean. Uh, how could I not give it? For, well, of for course, Larry? sure, sure. Yeah, and, I mean, and by the way, when she did it, she actually made sense when she did it. She did, right? She linked to a she linked to a story. She linked to a fundraiser. She said she vote she donated to his uh, his hashtag. So yeah, Melissa, yeah. she she did it right. <laughs> and by the way, I, I think because most most voters haven't heard of Gary Johnson, just the idea of having Larry the Cable Guy on a television show that people watch saying the words Gary Johnson. I I hope that I, I'm going to say that's good for Gary. So right. I'm going to say yeah. that a, a Johnson. Well, especially because they're doing that, you know, on the Stossel town hall they did, they went around with pictures of Johnson and well, they're like, do you know who these people are? No, no. So yeah, anything, anything's good at this point. <laughs> um, all right. Next topic. This is an interesting one. Um, we'll see if you are, uh, are Ford or not, because I just don't know. This is, this is a tough topic. So Gary Johnson came out and he said, I'm all for arming teachers. Mm. So what did you think of that? Should we, should, is that a good thing for him to come out and say, uh, and do you agree with it? 
Well, did he say I'm for arming teachers or did, did somebody say, would you be against a teacher having a gun in the classroom? More, yeah, I, I should nuance it more. He was it was yeah. more along the lines of, you know, they, he was being asked in general about should people have guns. And he said, he, I think is I should be reading the direct quote, but I don't no, know. No, no, no. I, I, I seem to remember it. He seemed to be kind of dismissive and he kind of he was like, man, I'm not going to tell people. Yeah, yeah. What- do <laughs> yeah he was like i'm not saying to go out everybody should go out and buy guns but yeah, yeah. but he he basically did say that the point he was making was that if teachers if teachers want to buy a gun to protect themselves and they feel that that's the best way to protect themselves and their kids that they mm-hmm. should be able to do so right um so both my parents are they they have uh concealed carry licenses oh ah, nice and um what I found very interesting when they got those was, uh, do you know in Texas, if somebody is in your house on your property at night and you do not know them or if they're not supposed to be there, you can shoot them. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah, not surprised kind of, by it. <laughs> that's kind of the rule. If they're on your property yeah. at night, you you can shoot them. And by the way, I could shoot somebody in the back if they're on my property at night and I could just say, yeah, I was scared. I, they weren't supposed to be there and I, I couldn't see in the dark. So I just fired. But there is a and, trial. I mean, there, there has to be a reasonable expectation of, of justice though. Somebody's cutting through or stay. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the most interesting part because in Texas, a lot of these, a lot of people say, yeah, the law is cut and dry. If you're on their property at night, they could shoot you. What are you doing on their property at night? Um, and it is a valid counterpoint. I gotta give it. What's, what's fascinating is my parents have concealed carry licenses, which means they were vetted and they went through a process and had to take a series of tests. So if somebody is on their property at night, and they shoot that person in the back, the government says, no, 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 you've been trained with this firearm. You've been trained in these situations. So you have a higher standard of accountability. Wow. So you can't just shoot somebody in the back. You have to show evidence that they were actually coming after you. You have to show evidence that your life was in danger. So simply by going through the correct channels to get the proper um, – uh, documentation, now you're held to a higher standard. So now you have to wonder if a teacher has a gun in the classroom, do do we do we make sure that they need proper credentials and how hold them to a higher standard? Or is just any willy nilly teacher allowed to bring a gun because they're they want to protect themselves? Like well, there are so many levels. Down, I think just like Texas, that could come down to to the individual states as well, I think, deciding what would the what the proper procedures would be. Right. Um you know, because as we know, Gary wants to get rid of the Department of Education, which I'm all for. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, that could come down to individual individual states or individual school districts even saying we this is what we recommend or this is what we demand of our teachers that they either be trained or certified or go through. I mean, look, if they're if they're, if they're private or if they're yeah. on a charter school system where they're not, you know, they're individual, they could even say we're going to have psychological evaluations they have to go through. Right. Because right. teachers are already they already have to go through background checks, too. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that. It's up to the individual school districts. Hopefully we get to a system where people can choose what school they go to so they can opt out if they're not comfortable with that system. But the way I, I always look at them, like, if we give a pilot a gun that, you know, is he's flying in a plane full of adults that could conceivably defend themselves far more than children could, why would we not want somebody that we're trusting our kids with all day anyway? So, right. I mean, why not say, okay, here's a little more trust that might be able to save my kid's life and 10 other kids' lives if some madman storms in here? 
Right. And I agree with that, too, because I, I don't know the last time you went to some sort of court in California. I, I go to traffic court every now and then and stand up for my rights. Um, for, against goddamn parking tickets that cost $90 every time for street sweeping. Uh, yeah, that's that's a whole different issue. But uh, um, the I, I do find it interesting. You have to go through all these metal detectors to get into the courthouse. And then there are the L.A. Sheriff's Department. Uh, those, those sheriffs act as deputies, yep. uh, as bailiffs. And uh, they're all armed. So, uh, you know, if something goes down in the government building, there is somebody with a firearm right there. But in schools, it's like, nope, no firearms allowed on campus by anybody for any reason. And you think, well, that's why school shootings are happening. And that's why there aren't people walking into police stations. Right, exactly. Because they're afraid of guns. Um, The obvious argument is going to be, if you let teachers have guns, the number of shootings where a child gets a hold of the gun and shoots somebody is going to skyrocket. And that is – it's going to go from zero to some other number. Yeah, to, to point zero one percent over you – know, yeah, 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 one yeah. million it's cases. Go from, yeah. It never happens to it happened one time and right. that's a skyrocketing. Um, <laughs> and they're always going to have that argument, which is why it's so hard to fix anything because there's always a counter argument that something could go wrong. Right. Yeah, but, or the – oh, what? What if the teacher loses his shit and uh, you know and, and has, decides to shoot up the classroom? And that's what yeah. you know, that's going to say. Same thing I say earlier is like, well, you, you trust him with him anyway. What's to stop him from just walking around and snapping necks a two year old? You know, I mean, yeah, on. yeah, exactly. They do that and all day, any day. Does that happen? Um, so I'm I would be trusting of a teacher with a gun. I would personally. All right. Well, it sounds like you might be giving this a Johnson. Johnson. I'm not going to stop him. I like Gary's <laughs> answer too. He's like, look, man, come on. I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell anybody what they can't do. <laughs> <laughs> it's all, yeah, it's, it's great. He's Maybe he's coming into his own. Oh, and now, one other point I wanted to make was yeah. that now you can make a gun at home with your 3D printer. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you ever read about that guy who um, thought TSA was just you know a complete mess. So he was going out and buying all of the items that you could buy in like the gift shop in any airport. And he was making little weapons in his home and test firing them. And I think he has like a YouTube channel. But uh, you know, instead of bullets, he's firing you know C batteries, mm-hmm. and uh, no, he's I've doing heard that. Of this guy. With uh, he's got like antacids and he's got, you know, he's creating chemical reactions using things that you could just find in the in the sundry shop at the the airport. And he's making lethal weapons using that stuff. But, oh, we can't bring we can't bring stuff through TSA. Okay, we're all safe. Right. You know, the guy's totally steal my idea. I had an idea for a a snow globe YouTube channel, which shows you how to shatter it and slice someone's jugular. But he's probably beat me to that already. That's probably the (laughs) obvious one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think it's just fascinating how he can create a weapon that fires from, you know, just r- regular everyday items. So the idea that you can have this plastic gun that fires, you can have just a homemade weapon that fires. And there are, of course, as we know, regular guns that people bring to school and shoot the place up. I feel like a teacher should be able to defend themselves. Yeah, damn well right. Now we've so Gary shockingly usually does not it does not go this well for Gary. He is four and zero, well eight and zero, uh, and plus an a uh, man, so seven and zero and a Johnson, but <laughs> doing pretty damn well so far. The problem I have and many people have with Gary is that he has paired himself with Bill Weld, <laughs> and let me take a, a minute and just bring us into what I like to call. 
the mind weld. <laughs> and also the land of libertarian make-believe. All right, Charlie. Neighborhood of make-believe. So, welcome to the land of libertarian make-believe and the mind weld. So let's talk about this, because Bill Weld always seems to take Gary down a notch, and sometimes he can be okay. You know, we won't go, we're already long, so we won't go into how Bill Weld tends to uh, to take over in many of their joint appearances, but... Bill Weld, the one thing I want to talk about now that, that really, really drove me nuts is Bill Weld was on a TV show, and I'll, I'll go ahead and embed this in the show notes as well, and the concept of Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act came up, and he mm-hmm. said that he would favor mandatory enrollment in order to keep costs down. Mm. What do you think of that? Um, well, here's here's... Here's where I'm kind of confused because I I was under the assumption at some point – by the way, if we're going to be dead honest on here, I did not pay a lot of attention to um, a lot of the provisions with Obamacare because – I've always paid for my own insurance. I have insurance. It's fine insurance, whatever. I'm, I'm – you know, when that was all being discussed, I was mm-hmm. in my 20s and I wasn't going to the doctor much anyway. Right, feeling good. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it clearly people had already voted for it, so it was out of my hands. Um, so I was under the impression that uh, people were required to just have some kind of insurance. Is that correct? Well, they are. Yeah, that is correct. And and what basically what it boiled down to, and this is this is why I have I have so much objection to it, and so many libertarians have objections to it, is that it said that you have to have a certain form of insurance, a certain type of insurance, like a base coverage, or you have to pay a mandatory fine. Mm. So essentially, via taxation, of course, of government, you know, they're they're forcing you into buying healthcare. Of course, what yeah. happened though is that many people still said. You know what? Obamacare has become so expensive. I'll just pay the tax. You know, like I'm not going to pay it. Right. I'm not going to go ahead and do it. It's just too expensive for me. So by you know coming around full full circle here, Bill Weld is now saying no. Everybody has to buy into the system because Obamacare is. You know, I don't know if you are keeping up with what's happening with Obamacare recently, but all of the exchanges are crashing in on themselves mm-hmm. because. The people who signed up for it are not, like you said, the young, healthy people in their 20s. They don't need to sign up. They don't want to sign up. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's all the people that are like, ah, I've got a goiter coming out of my neck and my kidney fell out of my ass. You know, like those are the people that are yeah. signing up for it and they're costing millions of dollars. And meanwhile, there's not enough to balance it out to keep it keep it uh, going. So all these exchanges right. are collapsing. <laughs> so, you don't have anybody paying in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Of course. The Ponzi uh, scheme and, is and done. Way, who knew? Who knew that it was so hard to start an insurance company? <laughs> right. um, yeah, I, I was kind of confused if Bill Weld was saying everybody should buy into the Affordable Care Act or if everybody just had to buy into some sort of insurance. He was saying uh, to, from what my, my rereading it and reading it, uh, he was saying that the problem from his perspective with the Affordable Care Act was that it did not require mandatory enrollment. And by virtue of that, that's why it had failed. So he's he would be for having everybody forced to buy a healthcare program <laughs> instead of saying, okay, well, you can pay the tax if you want to, you know, that's your option if you don't want to get it. So yeah. it's essentially just saying we're giving, it's, I mean, essentially making it into a, a, 
it's well, it's not universal health care. It's still got issues. But, you know, just this government control over people saying you must buy this one product, which is crazy. It's a private industry product anyway. Right. And and this is this is the most confusing issue that, you know, somebody is it's the classic example. Somebody rides their motorcycle without a helmet and then they hit something and then they need health. You know, they need medical care. Um, and they don't have insurance, like who pays for it? And, uh, you know, I don't know how to answer that question either. Like, it's such a conundrum because I certainly don't want my tax dollars paying for it. Yeah, I don't want your tax dollars paying for it. Uh, if he were forced to enroll in some sort of program, that doesn't seem very libertarian, but that takes away my problem. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know what? It's, it comes back to, I think, the, the libertarian viewpoint. You'd mentioned it way earlier in the podcast that, you know, there is there is such a thing as charity. And yeah. there are organizations, I'm sure that there are people out there who will say, you know what, we're, we're going to step up and we'll pay for it. Or maybe maybe they can be, you know, corporate responsibility is such a big thing nowadays. Maybe they can pressure the motorcycle companies into having a fund, a charitable fund that pays for people who aren't riding their motorcycles with helmets on and maybe they right. pay for it. So th- I mean, I think if you say, look, no, you know, <laughs> no one's paying for it. You, you know, find someone, here's the bill, but we'll find some other way to pay for it. That doesn't have to come out of taxpayers pockets. There's, there's ways to do it. I guess is what I'm saying, but we have right. to get past that emotional, who's going to take care of these people's brains kind of thing. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and say, I'm going to go ahead and say mandatory government enrollment in anything is wrong. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, that's that's if you really dig down to the the details of it, that's what's in my heart. The government can't enroll you in anything. I don't give a shit if it's the army or if it's, you know, uh, health care. I don't I, you know, you, exactly. you don't have to register your guns with them. I think that's the, the bottom line. Damn well. Right. Well, then give it what it deserves. John's off. John's off is right. That. We'll wrap it up, man. That's that's the game. So Bill Weld, he took a he took a chunk out of Gary at the end there, you know, like a little little shark bite right in the butt. But but overall, pretty good show for Gary. Uh, Ryan, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap this up? I just want to say it has been a pleasure having you on. I hope we can get you back again sometime. Your man clearly loves his libertarian principles. <laughs> this has been a, a very fun show for me. But yeah, uh, any, any final yeah. thoughts? You know, I just worry sometimes that uh, because we because the world is so complex, um, and I think the motorcycle healthcare example was a, a good uh, example of that. The world it comes with these complex little conundrums sometimes, where option A goes against libertarian values, and then option B goes against libertarian values, <laughs> right. and every once in a while we're only given the two options. And sometimes I worry that. That we've built a society where those two options come up a lot yeah. and both choices are anti-libertarian. And sometimes I wonder if we've moved too far away from it that there's no getting back. And uh, I I don't know. How do you feel about that? Well, I I think you're definitely right for sure. And this is something we had – we have internal discussions. Libertarians love fighting with other libertarians more than – Anybody, I think. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we've had a lot of discussions with like Rand Paul when he was running and and he was he was somebody which did not. He had a lot of libertarian values, but he also had a lot of values that didn't correspond. But there were things that he would do or or steps you'd say, OK, this is a step in the right direction. So I, I think that maybe now we're getting to the point where we can start to push back against the the thought 
I mean, I guess this, this overriding thoughts uh, that people are having where it is this, these two options that are completely unlibertarian. So I think there's enough people that are accepting the values of libertarianism where we can start to push back. There's enough people running for positions where we can take those steps and they've been forced. Hopefully the GOP has been forced to take some more libertarian positions. The, the Democrats, I don't know if they ever, you know, they've got their social ones, but they've got their own ideas. So yeah, I, I think that I'm more optimistic now than I was even when Ron Paul was running because it seems like there's really a legitimate shot that somebody that has libertarian values is actually going to be heard and could actually make people think about their options and how things right. are done. Right. Um, and I guess kind of the same question more on the fiscal front is I wonder if things have gone too far away from the, a free market society that is going to be very difficult to get back. That because- I think you might be right on. I, that I think it might be too far. You know, I I just I just find it so interesting that somebody who's never gambled before in their life can walk up to a slot machine, put in a dollar and win two million dollars. Like, I find that so fascinating. Like, I just I I, I can't see how that possibly helps a free market society. (laughs) And it happens on a much bigger scale with Wall Street all the time. But um, I think a bigger example of that is uh, if I gave you an option between having a 100% chance of having a million dollars or a 95% chance of having $5 million, which one would you take? God, that's a good question. I'd probably take the 95%, $5 million. <laughs> you know what's you know what's fascinating? You you are in a small group of people that makes that choice. And there are so many people I've asked that question to that overwhelmingly they say, Oh, no, no, no. I take the million. Take I want the 100% money. chance at the million. And um, I think any machine would tell you that taking the 5 million statistically is the correct choice. Right. And those are the machines that we have telling us what to bet on with the stock market. Those are the machines that are telling us what to do with our money, you know, as far as, you know, making predictions and things like that. But um, a human fear is such an incredibly unique element And I think it affects a lot of our economy and we don't know how to deal with it. And I don't know how to have a free market without eliminating fear. No, I think that's a very, very salient point. And I I, I thought about that, too, a little bit in the ways like you look at, you know, obviously bailing out the banks as people say, okay, we can't we have to bail them out because what if they fail? Again, that fear of what if they failed, how would we going to do? You know, we'll go through a recession. And I think at some point people have to say, you just got to do it for the greater good. You know, you, you have to say no at some point and you have to accept that fear and you have to get over it and just say, we have to let it, we have to let things fail that aren't good. You know, it's poison. We can either accept that this poison is going to course through our system and have faith that it's going to be okay. Or we can continue to just suffer through this poisonous system until eventually it's going to crash down the road. And that's what I think people don't get to either is they live in this fear where they say, okay, it's okay. We're just going to keep pushing it and pushing it down the road a little bit. And we're going to keep, you know, lowering interest rates and, and messing with the markets, but eventually it's going to crash because you can't sustain it. And you might right. as well get it done sooner or later, except the fact that it's going to be bad, but then it's going to be okay. You know, <laughs> yeah, I think I think there is a big aversion to just living through things while while it's bad, and uh, everybody's trying to put it off. I think you're exactly right on that. And uh, well, and yeah, it's like I mean, that's, Mexico. That's what we get 
for it, being weak, weak human beings and, yeah. uh, and, you know, caring about our own lives. Yep. Yeah. Damn That's us. Exactly what we get. That's <laughs> well, exactly what we get. It reminds me a little bit. You know, we were saying about the, about Mexicans and say, they say, okay, well, you know, I have nothing to lose by staying here. Uh, Americans in general, we have too much to lose to, to, you know, look at the bigger picture. Right. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that makes things complicated. That's our emotions versus the the facts. Yeah. There you go, man. Yep. We brought, it, we brought it full circle. Life. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you tying that thread through. I, I host some television sometimes. So <laughs> you I, do. I know how to the bow on the end. <laughs> well done. Well, I'll leave I'll leave it at that. I'm going to let the professional uh, to end that show. So, Ryan, thank you so much, man. This was a, this was a joy, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Watch man. In the debates. Yes. Let's, Make sure that happens. Damn well right. Get out there and get some petitions signed. Actually, I don't know if they sign petitions. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Just yell at people on the street. Just yell Gary Johnson at people's faces. Come on, guys. <laughs> All right. To everybody out there in Liberty Land, we will see you next time. Mark, take us out as you always do. Live long! And live free. <laughs>